Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network's Science, Technology, and Society page. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today I'm talking with Helen Tilley about her new book, Africa as a Living Laboratory, Empire Development and the Problem of Scientific Knowledge, from 1870 to 1950. In the book, Tilly uncovers surprising relationships that developed between science and empire as Britain attempted to fulfill its imperial projects in Africa. Focused primarily on Britain's colonial dependencies, Tilly shows how the weakness of the empire and the complexity of Africa and of Africans transformed field studies into social and scientific laboratories, conducting not merely scientific experiments, but also experiments in epistemology, governance, and disciplinary methods and aims. Tilly shows how what she calls vernacular knowledge circulated and affected metropolitan decision-making, how understandings of ecology and complexity seem to produce both epistemic and imperial humility. Um, and she shows how some scientists developed an ambivalence about their participation in research in states that were founded on white rule. Development, under all of its meanings, began long before decolonization. And Africa as a Living Laboratory shows us how imperial ambitions, expertise, and experience transformed understandings, understandings of what was possible and how it was best achieved. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um, welcome to the New Books Network, um, History of Science, Technology, and Medicine page. Um, we're talking to you today about your new book, Africa as a Living Laboratory, Empire Development and the Problem of Scientific Knowledge from 1870 to 1950. Before we get into the book, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I mean, I'll keep some things simple uh, because in some ways my my Childhood um, was rather complex. I grew up in a lot of different places around the U.S. and also lived in England. Okay. Um, but by the time I got to college, things had settled down. I went to the University of Chicago as an undergrad. It, it was my first choice, and I, I chose it because I knew it would be in line with the kind of rigorous intellectual training I wanted to get. Um, history had always interested me and the history of science as well, but I thought of it more as the history of ideas. So I went into the history of ideas as an undergrad and also the history of social movements because already as a high school student, I had been doing some activist work, um, campaigning around offshore oil drilling in the state of Florida um, and a couple other civil rights issues, anti-apartheid. So I was aware that um, I had two sets of interests, history of social movements and history of science, and I was constantly trying to bring those things together in college um, so that by the time I finished college, I actually went into social justice and environmental justice work full-time for about three years full-time and then another five years part-time at the national and international levels. So when we talk about some parts of the book, I'll probably end up referring to that past work because it was so influential in shaping the kinds of questions I was asking. Did you go to Africa as part of that time period? I didn't ever. I was 
exposed to African activists, um, mostly from Kenya, South Africa, and the Ivory Coast, um, also Ghana, um, in a meeting in Malaysia that I helped organize. So in 1993, we brought together young activists from around the world, um, and one of the people I worked with was an activist from Kenya, Wagaki Mwangi, and through that sort of friendship and collaboration, I became interested in the other side of African history that I hadn't learned in college, because I took the history of slavery and the slave trade in college, and I was interested in African American history in college, but I never got across the Atlantic to the African side of the story. And I knew that if I didn't address that side of the story in graduate school, I pro would probably never learn it. <laughs> That's a very noble reason to go to graduate school. Well, it wasn't the only reason, but I, I felt if I, if I were going to leave activist work behind, it seemed important to educate myself in a way that I didn't need, need to otherwise. I mean, okay. the politics for me were already there. The exposure to social justice issues around the world was already there. But the depth of information about the history of colonialism was not. Okay. And so had you conceived of this book already when you sort of started graduate school or did that come later? Oh, that came sort of as part of the process. I mean, one likes to create a tidy narrative <laughs> of where projects come from. But no, I remember applying to graduate school and I knew I wanted to do the history of the environmental sciences. I'd already written about the intersections between history of science and environmental history as an undergrad. I did my undergraduate thesis on George Perkins Marsh and conservation ideas and in the U.S. and sort of the early interest in the way humans intervened in and potentially destroyed various environments. Um, so I had those sets of interests, um, and I didn't really know that you could study colonialism or empires as part of the history of science I hadn't been exposed to it as an undergraduate, and so I, it was a, it was almost something I was trying to learn about, but didn't know how to learn about. So, where did you end up doing your graduate work? I started at UC Berkeley um, in the history department. I was admitted in the program of the history of science, and there I did environmental history and history of science for my PhD exam, um, as well as political ecology as a third field, um, which was also called environmental sociology at the time. And then serendipitously received a Fulbright to Oxford um, to start my dissertation research. By then, it was 1996, I had a fully formed proposal in mind. I was already concentrating on the interwar project called the African Research Survey, and I already had a few cast of characters I knew I would be writing about, Julian Huxley, Edgar Barton Worthington, Lord Haley, um, but I hadn't done any archival research before. Um, so I went to Oxford and within literally weeks decided to transfer, not because Berkeley was a bad place to do graduate studies, it was terrific, but more because I had already had, in, in many ways, the best of Berkeley, three years of coursework. Right. And now I was ready to do my dissertation research, and so I transferred to Oxford where you're allowed to dive right in. And so I just began the project, and I was closer to my archives 
and sources and people who had studied the history of the British Empire and science or African history and science or environmental history in Africa. So there were there was a nexus of individuals there who were just phenomenal to draw upon and talk to. And, and the graduate students, I have to say, the cohort in African studies um, and in medical history, both mm-hmm. areas were just fantastic. Okay. Uh, it's interesting you talk about the cohort um, and I guess the nexus, because one of the things that struck me most strongly when I read the book was that it, how much of the book was a, a corrective, and I think a very gentle corrective a lot of the time, um, sometimes so gentle that it wasn't always clear why um, the arguments mattered or what, why the interventions were so important. Um, so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about the views of science and empires that you were trying to complicate with this book. Well, it's interesting because I was I was drawing as much on my experience in terms of the rhetoric of social justice organizations as I was on my experience in my training, my graduate training. And so and I was also in dialogue with presentist actors, so anthropologists, sociologists and scientists today who are trying to address various problems. Um, so there are a lot of different conversations in a way that were going on in my head in a typical graduate education fashion where you do feel slightly schizophrenic. But one of the things that I noticed in the activist work and in some of the literature on science and empire was that there were a range of presumptions about scientists as they collaborated and in their sort of transnational communities about how they affected power structures in colonial states and how they influenced the kinds of environmental, medical, and racial or social interventions. And a lot of the stories that were being told were already quite interesting and quite good. But some of them, in typical graduate student fashion, irritated me or seemed to get something wrong. And in the process of trying to put my finger on that, because I was unwilling to narrow my thematic framework, I insisted on retaining a focus on the environmental sciences, the medical sciences, racial research, and anthropological research. Because I was looking at the dialogue across these fields and the ways they intersected and influenced each other, I noticed patterns that were either not being addressed in the literature, or certainly not in the rhetoric about the colonial past, or that were being misrepresented because it was sort of like only part of the elephant was being studied, the blind men and the elephant. Yeah. You know, so you got a really good description of a leg or a trunk or a tusk, yeah. but not a good description of the whole elephant. And expertise is, I mean, to really draw this horrible analogy out, the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, because they become, in some ways, the whipping post in the post-colonial period. How wrong scientific experts were. Right. And I mean, just to pay homage to the people who might argue that that perspective itself is not incorrect in many times and places. So one of the reasons. Just to address, you said I toned down or some of the, the corrective is muted or generous even. I mean, I felt it was my job to respectfully engage with people I either disagreed with or wanted to correct, partly because they were the ones who got me on the trail in the first place. 
And, and honestly, that without their work, I probably wouldn't have followed up on various sources or tracked down certain kinds of evidence to round out the picture because I was, I became quite curious, you know, what is the story here? And, and I also think as scholars, over time, in principle, we should learn how to engage constructively and productively with others. And I also think we should take our time to really understand what people are saying and why they're saying it. Because two people can look at identical evidence and come to di very different arguments and actually still have a considerable accuracy um, and correct interpretation underpinning those arguments, but they might be looking at what happened in different settings or with different populations. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt it was really important to say this is one slice mm -hmm. uh, of, of uh, one part of a story right. that needs to be told. Right. Um, so you, I mean, most of the book focuses on the interwar period and, and the African Research Survey, but you, you, you know, in the title, you you start from 1870. So I guess you, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how um, the imperial powers are thinking about the relationship between science, exploration, and empire in the in the late 19th century. Um, well, one of the reasons I went back as far as I did in time, and I actually cut 300 pages from the book, and most. <laughs> The 19th century story. Yeah. Um, so that's a lesson to be learned for first-time authors. Um, I really didn't want to begin in the interwar period. I thought it could actually lead to erroneous arguments. Okay. I wanted to, to, to address the fact that empires have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that there was a beginning to this story that needed to be dealt with. The ending part of the story is much more open-ended because I don't deal with the end of empire. I, I offer suggestive arguments. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the 19th century, one of the things that I found very interesting was that learned societies, and I use that word um, to take into account the scientific societies, but also societies that were populated by educated people who might have industrial interests or economic, more broader economic interests or even just sheer scholarly literary interests mm -hmm. that were turning their attention to African affairs mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century. I mean, the word Africanist was coined in about 1895 by one of the actors I talk about, Arthur Silva, Silva White, a geographer who worked with the Scottish Geographical Society. There was this turn by geographical societies and anthropological societies, but also the British Association, the Royal Society, a range of other groups where they were trying to begin a conversation about the African continent, the relationship it ought to have to Europe, the possibility of colonizing, the technologies that might be useful. I mean, a lot of the material I cut out had to do with mapping and mm -hmm. telegraphy, and the geodetic surveys, um, the engineering projects that were planned for rail, railways. I mean, there was a huge sort of imaginative discussion going on about what could happen in Africa. 
that tend that ended up culminating in the early 1890s in the discussion about science and the development of Africa. And I didn't really understand. I'd, I'd seen glimmers of this in other people's work, but I didn't really understand that the 1890s was almost an ending of one kind of conversation, not the beginning of a dialogue about science and development in Africa. So I would say it, uh, there was about 20 years of discussion about science and development vis-a-vis -vis Africa that was consolidated in the early 1890s during the scramble for Africa and through the acts of what I call in the book the paper partition. Right. So is there, I guess, a British consensus that emerges in the 1890s about Africa and its role in, your, in, in relationship to Europe and development? Well, there was certainly a preoccupation with natural resources, and right. that wasn't new. Um, there had been waves of interest in, in enclosing the African continent, as late 18th century economists talked about. Um, so the interest in natural resources wasn't new. Um, the prospecting, in a way, for nat natural resources was still somewhat... Mixed um, in the sense that the, the the promise was held out, but the actual potential was still unknown, and so there was a, there was lots of proposals for surveys. Mm -hmm. The same for debates about settlement. I mean, possibilities for European settlement across the African continent were being uh, proposed all over the place, and there were continued debates about races, bodies, acclimatization, what was possible, at what altitude. And I cover some of those questions. Yeah. Uh, there were even parts of Kenya and Uganda were being proposed, and I cut this from the book, but were being proposed as colonies for Indian settlers ma on a massive scale, not to the extent, I mean, there was already Indian settlement in East Africa, but some British administrators were proposing it on a massive scale, and these were all being actively debated. Yeah. So it was sort of in tandem with partition, but it, the, the ways in which it, it influenced partition were uneven and at times quite weak. And that lack of consensus, I think, really carries through, um, through the interwar period, as I think, I mean, your book really shows very, very well. Um, so most of the book, like I said, said does focus on the um, interwar period and specifically on this, this International Institute for African Languages and Cultures and the African Research Survey. Um, and I guess so. The, the, the African Research Survey's crowning achievements are these three books that it publishes in 1938 that are the culmination of a decade and a half of work. Um, and I guess the most relevant for us is, is Science in Africa. Uh, can you say a little bit about who was involved in, in these projects and how they came together? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'll step back for a minute first and just say that I'm, I use the African Research Survey as a way to get onto the ground in sub-Saharan Africa. It was a metropolitan project that began in the late 1920s and culminated in the late 1930s, but rather than coming to a finite end, it just sort of in some ways evaporated and in other ways was folded into official power structures. So, I mean, it had an, it had an interesting history. On the one hand, some of the scholarly and institutional proposals 
that it hoped to achieve never came to fruition. But on the other hand, it had unexpected institutional results, including helping uh, justify the creation of a group in the 19, late 1940s, the Scientific Council for Africa South of the Sahara, which it never really intended to establish. That was an African-based institute um, and network of scientists to promote research on the ground in Africa that can be traced back to the African survey in the 1930s, but wasn't originally part of the African survey's aims. Mm -hmm. The project was, as its name implies, a survey of research. And imperial historians have paid attention to it for decades and have understood that it had a significant effect on shoring up support for financial development projects. I mean, literally funding of economic development in sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere across the British Empire. So they've interpreted it, historians have interpreted it as helping catalyze the Colonial Development and Welfare Acts of 1940 and 1945, and it indeed did do that. But originally, it was intended also to survey the kinds of research that were necessary for social welfare and economic development projects and colonial state building more broadly. And so it was intended to be comprehensive, which is why I was unable to relinquish that broad overview. Because they, they wanted to explore environment, medicine, health, anthropology. They didn't explore things like engineering, which is why I left it off the table. So I was sort of following their interests, and it was really the life in environmental and medical sciences that uh, began to dovetail with the human sciences. And that allowed me to then explore what projects in Africa they thought were important, what research projects. And by the time the project had been, was about five, six years old, the colonial office and the British government more generally began to turn to the leaders of the African survey and ask them, what do you think should be funded? Should this project be supported? What about this project? So they became essentially an arm of the British government unofficially, a kind of backdoor to science policymaking and to interpretations of what an appropriate relationship between science and development really ought to be. But at the, in the early stages of the book, I mean, if I recall correctly, you don't see this close collaboration between, um, I guess, the leading intellectuals, the leading Africanists, if, that, if I can use that term, and the officers of the colonial department, um, the colonial office. I mean, the, the, so this was one way it was a corrective to me. It's much more familiar with the Cold War period, and there's very close relationships between area studies scholars and the U.S. State Department, for instance. Um, so, I mean. How, what was, I guess, what was the relationship between the African survey and the colonial, the colonial office in the beginning? And how did they, I guess, convince the colonial office that they were worth listening to? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I explain in the second chapter of the book that the relationship initially was controversial and hostile. Um, the colonial office had a job to do in the British Empire. Its function was to coordinate and oversee policymaking and funding and research projects already. I mean, it already saw itself as essentially um, a kind of panoptic 
coordinator of parts of the British Empire. I mean, this did let's we have to remember this did not include India or Egypt or even South Africa, the Dominion. So this right. was, these were the dependencies that really didn't either have self-governance or had no autonomy outside the British Empire. The hostility came not just from the idea that the African survey might duplicate work, but also that they might be critical of colonial policies and that they might genuinely try to supersede the colonial office. I mean, no one in the early years thought that it could achieve that kind of power, but they were certainly concerned about anything that might compete with their role. I guess it's surprising because it's just um, the scope and the resources needed to mobilize the, the research in Africa and then also the book, um, Science in Africa, right? So can you say, I mean, I guess, the, can you say a little bit about the size of the kinds of research, the size of the research project in Africa and then how the actual survey itself was done and how the, pro, the books were put together? Well, one of the goals I had in writing this book was to get a sense of the scope and scale of the colonial apparatus writ large. Because I, imperial historians and diplomatic historians need to do this all the time, or economic historians. You need to get a sense of the magnitude of an undertaking, not just in terms of funding, but personnel, the geographical scale. So I had to do a lot of just sheer number crunching and personnel crunching, mm-hmm. um, taking the lead from imperial historians before me who have done that kind of work. Um, so I'm hardly alone in those kinds of interests. But I, I did feel that the number crunching, the statistical gathering I was doing, would sort of burst some bubbles about impact. So one example is I, uh, with the help of a research assistant, I crunched the numbers of the colonial office personnel in the British dependencies I was looking at in British Africa and found that the interwar period was actually a peak hiring point. So you saw the incredible growth in the 1920s and then expected decline after the Great Depression. But even by 1951, the sheer numbers of colonial office personnel, and by office I mean sort of appointees Mm -hmm. within the colonial service. Um, So colonial service personnel on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa, British Africa, never exceeded 10,000 people. So if you start doing a kind of benchmark, let's see, the the Center for Disease Control, I think, employs 13,000 people. The World Bank employs more than 13,000 people. And these are institutions, not states. So when you start kind of thinking, well, okay, 10,000 people is the total number in any one year. But of that number, about 25% worked in the technical services meaning the people who are actually doing the intervening around agriculture, medicine, or the racial projects. And of that 25%, a much smaller number was actually doing field work and scientific research and producing new kinds of studies. So I had to start sort of winnowing in on the people doing the studies and then precisely following the money. Mm-hmm. Where, were, where were the metropolitan funds going? What kinds of projects were being supported? What were being proposed as benchmark studies that could be um, explored elsewhere. And to my surprise, I found that 
ecological research was incredibly important in these early years, either in terms of being proposed first. So the ecological survey of Zambia, or then northern Rhodesia, was proposed in the late 1920s as a massive undertaking, 290,000 square miles of territory to be surveyed over the course they thought then of two years. It ended up taking almost 15. But that was one such project. And in fact, one of the things that I started looking at, other projects that, that concentrated on ecology and social anthropology were funded. So the Amani Agricultural Research Institute in Tanzania, or the Tetsi Research Department in Tanzania, Eastern and Central Africa became hubs for interterritorial coordinating projects. And it was those projects often that the African Research Survey honed in on because they realized that these kinds of studies might be useful for other sorts of state building activities. And these kinds of studies, in a sense, gave a kind of snapshot of a whole range of activities because they were not narrowly conceived. So even though ecology was addressing plant species and soil and mm -hmm. climate, none of the projects I'm describing left people out of the picture. Right. Intentionally so. And, and the fact that they did not leave people out of the picture meant that Africans, in a sense, in these studies became either ethnographic subjects of projects often also research assistants and informants and translators. So you had a whole range of, of participation that if you looked carefully, you could see the results of in my work. And then if you look at the book Science in Africa, you can see a kind of bifurcated motivation. You have this incredible desire to modernize, modernize in agriculture, modernize in health. I mean, those are the main areas. And modernize in terms of social development and all the indicators that that would suggest around education, um, but also politics mm -hmm. and state building. But in tandem with wanting to modernize, they also wanted to do it in a way that where they kept saying, we need to do it responsibly or we need to do it in a way that, that reflects the existing conditions and the phrase existing conditions or local conditions kept being invoked as a kind of break on the modernizing wheel. So how do you take into to account what these existing conditions are, local conditions, and how in some respects do you take into account the kinds of knowledge Africans themselves possessed about environmental management or disease control or therapeutics? And so those puzzles became quite interesting to me, and I tried to present my results in ways that didn't exaggerate how influential these findings were, but showed just in a way how radical the findings were in terms of a politics of knowledge. I guess, so yeah, I mean, one of the things that recurred to me um, was not only the sense that the British Empire is incredibly weak in Africa, but that its officials are continually aware of their weakness in, in Africa, and that that weakness um, comes from, I guess, on the one hand, their knowledge, that, their realization slowly, I guess, that Africans do actually have a lot of knowledge about their local ecology, about their local ecosystems, about agriculture, about even about medicine, right? And there's these like profound problems for 
the British, for British colonial officials to think about how to, to think about, say, witch doctoring and, and, and folk healing and those sorts of things. Um, I guess I, I guess I want to ask you a question about the way that they see, I guess the way that they see the role of science, and especially because many of them are not, in fact, colonial officials, right, in creating stronger states. But I guess that's the theme of the entire book. So. Well, they certainly weren't all aware that that's what they were doing. Uh-huh. And by they, I mean the, the participants in the colonial service who were doing field work or research, or even the metropolitan figures who were contributing various studies. Um, but you're right. What did interest me was were the co- the open conversations that people had at various stages. I mean, even in the partition period, I found quotes that sounded like a post-colonial critic right. saying, "We're just drawing lines on a map yeah. without without paying any attention to the wishes of the people." or even the natural contours of the land or the societies that inhabit these spaces, this is bound to run into problems. I mean, they would just openly talk about the colonial process and how autocratic it was. Right. And I guess they have, none, they have none of the hubris we tend to associate with imperialism, I think, a lot of them. Well, that it was tempered, I guess, right? It was tempered or they were just candid. I mean, yeah. the hubris, you, you, when you have power, you don't necessarily have to be arrogant with that power. You can be humble or especially in the early stages of, of the partition, there was such competition with the Germans and the French and even the Belgians that, or at least King Leopold, that competition created a sense of defensiveness on the part of the British because they had the largest empire to protect. Right. So depending on the scale of one's empire shaped some of the strategies that they employed, no question. And the conversations that happened would often not necessarily reinforce the worst kinds of policies you could imagine. I mean, so that that was another interesting dynamic that I began to uncover. I mean, if you could imagine something that was sort of a worst case scenario of not consulting people or paying no attention to existing practices or ideas or culture, um, you know, sort of draw that out to its logical extreme. And then you saw what was actually proposed and then what was actually done you might see that uh, there were there was a spectrum of of choices mm-hmm. that people were making and in that spectrum they were often trying to satisfy various different kinds of contradictions or at least uh, resolve contradictions in colonial state building and it was their their conversations that actually alerted me to in some ways what those contradictions were so let's i mean Let's maybe talk about um, agriculture and ecology as an example of how this happened, um, because I think colonists, especially colonists, kind of have this reputation for misreading the African landscape. For, for, for instance, the thing that the apparent abundance of tropical Africa was due to, you know, the fertility of African soil. And you sort of chronicle people coming to realize that that's not the case, um, and that what looks like uncivilized. Um, 
agricultural practices is in fact well, they'll often just say perfectly adapted to the to the ecology and the circumstances. So I guess can you say a little bit about how people are how the colonial officials are learning that how and then how it's also um, taken up in the metropole and how this leads to a rethinking of the, the imperial project, um, either if you think of that as developing extra, uh, resources or a, a sort of bringing civilization to Native mm-hmm. Africans. Yeah. I mean, what interested me, and again, I mentioned the 300 pages I cut from the book. What interested me was that some of these concerns about the fertility of African soils and the the unevenness of the fertility, um, those debates were being had in the 1870s as much as they were in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and it was truly fascinating to see some of the geologists from the 1870s who had done expeditionary work in East Africa, for instance, come back and say the idea of abundant agricultural production is a fallacy. You know, that they, they just began to question it. Now, they would also say they were kind of voices crying out in the wilderness because there was such a kind of boosterism about the scramble for Africa that geographers and anthropologists certainly had no control over once it was fully underway, mm-hmm. though I did want to document their role in helping catalyze it. But by the time you get to the 1920s and the more systematic studies that were trying to resolve what I talked about before, some of the contradictions, you get both internal people in the colonial service and outside experts who come in to do a, a sort of advisory work saying very similar things about the need to pay closer attention to African agricultural techniques for two reasons. You need to pay closer attention because sociologically, if you intervene in people's lives, they need to be able to trust you. And if you give them bad advice and they can't trust you, mm-hmm. then you're, they're not going to listen to you any, any longer. And mm-hmm. the weakness of colonial states made that sociological argument quite powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's a utilitarian argument. If we lose their trust, they're not going to listen to us. So let's gain their trust by giving them accurate suggestions and recommendations. A more powerful, a stronger part of this argument was, hey, they might be onto something. They might actually be good agriculturalists, and we may be the ones who don't understand relationships between soil, climate, parasites, insects, disease, and, and plant growth. And they may have developed strategies that work better than ours, full stop. I mean, it was efficacy, what works and what doesn't. I mean, this is in the realm of agriculture, and it's, and it's fascinating because you have, you know, members of agricultural departments and leaders of agricultural departments in the early 1920s saying these kinds of things on both fronts, the sociological argument and the stronger epistemological argument and practical argument, they may know something we don't. Mm-hmm. And it begins to be tested through colonial development funds by the late 1920s. So the empire puts its money where its mouth is, in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the irony here, is that the empire began to fund projects 
that were rhetorically justified under the language of putting farmers first. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a language I was exposed to in, ter- in terms of a post-colonial critique. Absolutely. Let's put farmers first. It's about time to put farmers first. But imagine my surprise when I find a study by an ecologist trained in the United States, Homer Shantz, in 1924, 1925, where he says the British Empire's job is to put farmers first. Mm -hmm. And they need to study what he called native agricultural practices much more closely. So that kind of dynamic, I mean, you see that the empire begins to fund, I mean, the colonial office begins to fund research projects that looked, that did ecological studies and sociological studies of African agriculture. And they also began to advocate working a kind of bottom-up strategy, I call, working from what already existed and strengthening those things. But they they were already, I mean, just to be quite clear for those who know African history well, there had been already so many different kinds of interventions agriculturally around plantation agriculture, monocropping, cash crops, that this was something happening in tandem with things that were already going on. So there was already a lot of intervention that was incredibly disruptive and socially damaging, ecologically damaging. So this, the things I describe are, it's not a pretty picture in a way. I mean, there might have been insights developing, but it was at the same time that there was massive social upheaval Mm -hmm. in many different parts of British Africa. You, I guess, what is you? You talk about the role of, um, I guess, the developing role of ecology as central to the way that uh, African researchers think about um, agriculture on the one hand, but also disease, right? So, can you say a little about, um, I guess, the the importance of this idea of ecology um, and its yeah, and its relationship. Well, there are two- and protect, you know, maybe it's relationship to the way that they think about administration and governance. Mm-hmm. There, there are two arguments I make in the book. I mean, one is that field sciences, and particularly ecology and social anthropology, but also um, the kind of fusion between tropical medicine and field epidemiology. So you have sort of three roots, ecology, field epidemiology, and social anthropology, all kind of professionalizing in the period that I'm talking about and establishing a much firmer disciplinary identity for themselves. Certainly, ecology and social anthropology used, professionals in these fields used British Africa to develop their disciplinary identity. And a a central precept of their field work was to explore the interrelations of species and relations between species and their environment and developments that emerged out of that that could take on a kind of systemic dynamic. So one of the things I want to show is, and and others have done this as well, that ecology was in formation at the time. Social anthropology was in formation. Certain concepts 
like ecosystem ecology, were generated out of and applied within African concepts and field, Af rather, rather African research and field work that then had a kind of feedback dynamic. But one of the other things that was happening too, I mean, the British Empire is a, is a complex and unwieldy phenomenon yeah. politically, politically and economically, and even legally. And a lot of the people who administered at a metropolitan level or at a pan-African level parts of the empire or all of the empire were constantly aware of the kind of action at a distance dynamics of empire building, that you, you had to understand the parts and the whole, that you had to explore tensions across the empire to really appreciate what was going on in any one location. So in addition to the kind of political and economic logic of empire building, I also explore the logic of complexity, because I argue that the, the rhetoric about interdependence interrelations and complexity was not limited to the field sciences that were being brought to bear on British Africa. It was also part of an administrative language of coordinating and managing the flow of information and the flow of knowledge across the empire. And so those two strands of thinking tended to come together in these sort of survey projects. And one of the things you get, you asked about disease, one of the things you get in terms of an ecological approach to disease is a very different set of solutions that takes a much kind of broader canvas into account in the first place and that explores the dynamics between, say, parasites and hosts and reservoirs and environment and climate in terms of vector-borne diseases. Mm. And that begins to find strategies for disease control that might be quite environmentally sensitive or sociologically sensitive. And so that was another dynamic I wanted to explore because eco ecological approaches to disease control have a history of their own as well. And African environments were very central to generating at least one or two strands of that approach, and I want people to understand that these are not just European or North American phenomena, that people in other parts of the world engaged with different kinds of environments were also central to that story. So just to, I guess, return to this, the point about ecology, so is your claim that it's, it's really the field, the experience of people in the field thinking about Africa as a bunch of localized ecology returning to England returning to the metropole, that is, that is giving rise to ecological understandings or an, under, an understanding of ecology in general in, in the UK or not? Is that sort of what you meant? Um, it's more that I'm looking at the, the feedback, the dynamics. I mean, it's, it would be too strong an argument to claim that metropolitan de developments depended on no, African no. developments. But certainly... By the time you get to even 1902, I mean, I talk a lot about sleeping sickness, right, African right. trypanosomiasis, a vector-borne disease, right. fatal in humans, and in which there were large epidemics around the Lake Victoria area and elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, the tropical belt, at the turn of the century, all the way up through about 1914, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people dying. So sleeping sickness was a central disease to figure out, first, 
and then try to control second. And these things happen in quick succession. The luxury of figuring everything out usually isn't in place. Policies have to be put in place immediately. And other historians of medicine have done a better job than I in looking at the social dynamics involved and the administrative interventions. I was more interested in the field work and even the theoretical framing. Mm -hmm. So as early as 1902 and 1903, you have a bacteriologist, Louis Sambon, who begins to talk about a need to understand the ecological conditions of sleeping sickness. And he used that phrase, ecological conditions. Mm -hmm. There's a reason he used that phrase. He was talking about the disease in its full context. Now, I don't go into much detail about Sambon's phrasing because, it, again, it was one of those parts of the book I had to cut. But I do try to explore the ways in which disease ecology, the idea that a disease has an ecology was worked out in terms of sleeping sickness and British epidemiologists and ecologists in the 1920s and 30s. And that is a story that you, you need to understand if you want to make sense of some of the metropolitan trends, I would say. It's, it's frustrating when I see histories of ideas and disciplines that talk about people going overseas as if, of course, they went overseas, but don't turn that dynamic into a problem that we need to explain and explore. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, if there is an administrative problem in the, in, in these colonial dependencies in East Africa, it is the problem of sleeping sickness, right? Um, it seems like uh, a place where science, where scientific knowledge, research, and administration come together. Um, I guess, can you say a little bit, I guess, about not only about ecology, but about um, local knowledge or the role of, no or sensitivities to local knowledge and local practices there? Um, and I guess the way that administrators and, and researchers thought about it or dealt with it or incorporated them. Well, there are a couple things. I mean, this is, I'm not writing social history, so I'm not, I'm actually not trying to reconstruct African cosmological systems or, um, the dynamism of various practices in regions, different parts of Africa. But what I was interested in doing was tracing sort of vestiges of interactions that were evidence in the published and unpublished reports and in the correspondence surrounding scientific field work and research. So interactions were happening on the ground all over the place all the time. And sometimes those were planned and intentional interactions and more often than not, they were unplanned. But what I noticed was that a lot of the field workers, because they lived in a place for a very long time and might have to develop language abilities to, to converse with people around whom they lived, mm -hmm. that they would actually pursue, in a sense, oral interviews as part of their work. Oral interviews to think through agricultural practices or to talk about the history of disease in a certain area or even just to talk about landscape and its changes. So they were eliciting, they meaning field, European, usually British, 
um, colonial service reps were eliciting information all the time, right. which we also call knowledge, expertise. And there are traces of this information all over the place, often explicitly stated traces. I mean, even down to the acknowledgments of, you know, thank you, thanks to my informants. And in those traces, you begin to see that dynamic I was describing earlier of moving from a negative assessment of information and expertise that Africans might possess to a positive assessment. So a kind of valorization of some kinds of knowledge. And usually it had to do with agriculture, therapeutics, or disease control. But sometimes it would also, I mean, among social anthropologists, it would also have to do with social systems or um, techniques of maintaining social order, which were often combined with therapeutic practices. So in looking at the field work that was done and the kinds of studies, I was interested in those positive assessments and where they came from. And I was trying to figure out what to call it. You know, what do you say when one of your field workers spends 10, 15 years perfecting a technique and a method in agriculture, a method of disease control that relied on information garnered from informants? Uh -huh. and not, just, not just entirely instrumentally elicited. I mean, not just for the purpose of then therefore conquering them better but for actually intervening more effectively, perhaps even more respectfully, mm -hmm. with more attention to the things you hear now in terms of participatory development or sustainable development, with more attention to the specificity of culture and place. And so when I saw some of my actors doing those things, I wanted to give it a label, give it a name. Um, so I called it vernacular science vernacular really indicating that there was information exchange at the vernacular level. Um, and science, because it was translated, this was translated information, the scientists were doing the translations, they were eliciting the information that mattered to them, and they were publishing it in a new form that was relevant to other scientists, so that it could then begin to circulate in a wider audience, among a wider audience. But I didn't want, I mean, vernacular does have a nice, somewhat benign ring, but it doesn't necessarily have to be benign. I mean, that's something that I, I hope I'll expand upon and further work, because there is always a kind of instrumental element. They were looking for information that worked or information that was good for their purposes. Um, and so the vernacular science could cut in a number of different ways. I mean, in one way, I'm trying to feature that it valorized African expertise. But in another way, it could potentially support the aims of the colonial state. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my work to ever be interpreted as, as a kind of apology for colonialism or a way of saying, look, colonialism was good after all. That's not at all what I'm saying. And so I want people to understand that we can, we can explore the history of this field work and explore the cross-cultural dynamics that were in play and explain them respectfully in a way as scholars, because that helps us understand, in a way, what was lost in the post-colonial period, because much of this actually didn't continue. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, the best example of, um, the one that struck out the most for me of this vernacular science had to do with, uh, you know, tsetse fly control and, and burning and the way that that was sort of taken from, is it, it's a Zulu practice, right? It started as, yes. um, right. And you sort of, you know, there's some white official to try and get a, a bigger burn going on. And, you know, they think that it's because that they achieved it and it's sort of, and, and they get this big burn to happen and they think maybe, you know, this is a sign that things are going to go well for, you know, a state, but you sort of show that, well, no, this might just be actually their regular practices. But anyway, that this practice is further taken on to um, other parts of Africa. Um, I guess, you know, as we're, as we're running out of time, I think I want to pull up this fact, the sort of these things that you were suggesting at the end that this under, this acknowledgement of the complexity of development um, and the complexity of, I guess, just life in Africa seems to disappear in the post-war period, and, or in the, or maybe it's as part of, the, of decolonization. Um, and that there's this switch to focusing almost, I mean, you, you sort of talk about this in the conclusion, a switch to focusing almost purely on economics um, post-World War II. I wonder if you could just, do you have any sense of why that, why this is forgotten about? Um, it's not, so, I wouldn't say it's forgotten, because I do think that it persists in pockets and even in some states. Um, what was striking to me was how central it was for at least a decade or two in colonial state building as kind of an ethos of colonial state building. And then it became more popular in African and area studies. I mean, I think the research itself found a more comfortable home in scholarly worlds than in the world of state building. And I, I originally, the last chapter was titled to have the t the word technoscience in the title, so it was technosciences, ethnosciences, and field sciences, and and I was trying to explore, but I decided against it ultimately, the divide or division that went into technoscientific research, so literally science and technology in in the post World War II period, and ethnoscientific research, um, the sensitivities to culture and uh, cross-cultural epistemology and the different directions those those research trends went in. But you can still find evidence of some of the dynamics I'm talking about, even in the African Union, which adopted the Scientific Council for Africa South of the Sahara mm -hmm. structure in 1963 and 64. So certain colonial institutions were folded into the African Union the African Union's turn to study ethnopharmacology was in some ways a byproduct of research projects begun in the 1950s, again, that didn't make it into the last chapter of my book, but which I, I hope to work on in my next project. Um, so I'm looking at some of the continuities in the post-colonial and post-World War II period, I'm the, you know, Chronologically, we have the consequences of the Second World War and high tech and DDT and penicillin. I mean, they're whole, they're new tools mm -hmm. that give more power to this idea of environmental and medical mastery than maybe existed in the, in the 1930s. So those tools definitely influenced the landscape. The concentration of economists and engineers also influenced the landscape. I mean, economics becomes even more important 
after the Second World War, and new economic institutions and international institutions come forward, not just the UN, but the Bretton Woods institutions, mm-hmm. the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. So you have a whole new international landscape and, in some ways, a new Pan-African landscape. But the interests and priorities I, I focus on really found their most comfortable home in African studies programs. And that's where you see the research agenda continuing. But the interesting aspect is many of these people were not as central to state building Mm -hmm. in the post-colonial period. They were more aptly described as critics of colonialism, as allies of what you might call subaltern strategies of development or bottom-up strategies um, or popular strategies. So, so they definitely had a moral allegiance to a people-centered approach to development, but they didn't have the same kind of power, ironically, that some of the people I look at had. Okay. So what are you working on now? Well, my current project, I've, I've been working on it, um, depending on how you count, for a year or four years. <laughs> I'm looking at African decolonization and global governance, and I'm exploring this transition um, to the post-colonial state and the rise at a pan-African level and an international level of traditional medicine. I think it's really important for African, imperial, and world historians to understand not just the salience of categories like traditional medicine, but to understand their genealogies um, and the processes that produced them. And I'm not alone in in having these interests. I mean, there, there are other people working on these questions, both in Africa and in other parts of the world. But I think what I'm bringing to it is um, a set of techniques about understanding the flow of information at at the pan-African level and the transnational flow at the imperial and international levels that I'll bring to bear on this current project. It's called the wisdom of the peoples. Um, And then, of course, the subtitle, and that's a, that's a, quote, direct quote from the African Regional Office, the director of the African Regional Office of the World Health Organization. Um, He talked about the resurrection of traditional medicine at a meeting in 1984 as as valorizing the wisdom of the peoples. And for two decades um, during his directorship, he helped shepherd in projects research projects that studied different features or facets of traditional therapeutics or African therapeutics in Francophone and Anglophone Africa largely. Um, So I'm trying to make sense of that. And two of the regions that I'm looking at most explicitly are in West Africa, Senegal and Nigeria, um, because like my first project, I have a kind of Pan-African access Axis and an imperial axis, but unlike my first project, I'd like to do even more detailed work to show how things flow from various sites to elsewhere. And West Africa, particularly Senegal and Nigeria, were extremely important to the transformation at the international level of some of these debates, and they were also important for the African Union. So I'm beginning some of that on-the-ground research this year, in fact. 
So you're traveling to Africa? To Senegal, Nigeria? Um, well, I'm hoping to go to Nigeria, and if it's not this summer, then it'll be sometime next next academic year, next summer, to look at various archives and records of the Scientific and Technical Research Council of the African Union, which was based in Lagos from 1965 onwards. Um, but also there are various universities in southwestern Nigeria and research institutes and sites begun in the colonial period that still exists today that have archival records, I hope, and unpublished reports, I hope, based on some of my questions. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I can sort of still, I mean, it's still clear how the kind of relationship between historical inquiry and your sort of social justice concerns are being evidenced in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks very much, Helen. Thank you. You're welcome. That was my conversation with Helen Tilly, the author of Africa's Living Laboratory. There's much more in the book that we didn't get to talk about um, because we ran out of time. In particularly, in particular, sorry, um, Tilly has interesting and important chapters about the importance and the role of social anthropology and of social anthropologist conflicts um, with colonial administrators of Earth who had the right understanding of Native African society. Uh, she also has an important chapter about racial science um, and some of the scientists participating in the African um, research surveys own ambivalence in their participation in states that were committed basically to white rule. Um, also, you heard Dr. Tilly mention the statistics that she'd compiled as part of the project, um, and she's helpfully appended these for anyone else that's interested in thinking or in looking at in more detail about research, the, the extent of British um, research as part of its colonial project in Africa. I recommend the book. It's fascinating stuff.